You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. Do you like ghost stories? Ones about eerie footsteps in silent hallways and objects being moved by unseen hands? Well, let's turn it up a little. What about stories of poltergeist infestations, dishes and knives floating around the room, rocks and bullets flying through windows, mysterious fires being set throughout the house? How about strange curses, evil demons, dark family secrets, horse rides through haunted woods, teenage oracles, and shape-shifting witches with a penchant for real estate who live on the edge of a swamp? If so, I have the perfect story for you. You're listening to Fireside Canada, my podcast about Canadian legends, lies, and lore. I'm David Williams. Tonight, we'll be investigating one of Ontario's greatest and most enduring ghost stories. It blurs the line between fact and fiction, features one of my favorite Canadian folk heroes of all time, and crams nearly every popular gothic trope into one breathless narrative. That's no exaggeration, either. This strange bit of folklore has captured people's imaginations for over 200 years, and has attracted a number of diverse experts who have eagerly offered differing explanations for these strange events, ranging from old-world demons and witchcraft to more modern ideas of poltergeists, untapped psychokinesis, and adolescent outbursts. There's so much here to unpack that I've had to divide it into two episodes. Tonight, you'll hear the classic legend originally published in the 1870s. Later, in part two, I'll walk you through all of the various theories that have risen throughout the years. Some still popular today, others mostly ignored, from the time these events occurred right up to the present day. It's a shining example of the Canadian settler gothic folktale. This is the story of the Baldoon Mystery. Part 1. Beginnings The voyageurs who travelled Upper Canada called it Chanel Écarté, the lost or isolated channel, a remote sheltered distributary of the St. Clair River that winds its way south through dark forests and dismal marshes to empty into Lake St. Clair. It was on the banks of this lonely waterway, within the region known as Baldoon, that the Scottish pioneer Donald MacDonald built his home. Now, at first, the McDonald's flourished. They had a number of children, including a son, John. And in time, the family purchased the neighboring property so that John and his wife could build their own house, help tend the livestock, and work the land. It was a hard but happy life in those early years on the channel, lived in relative peace and prosperity. Everything would change in the summer of 1829. It would start with a series of small, strange events, Stones flying through windows, phantom footsteps, dishes and tools floating in midair, objects going missing and then reappearing in odd places. Soon, the somewhat mischievous behavior would devolve into more aggressive, violent, and dangerous activity that would plunge John MacDonald and his family into three years of terrifying struggle with a violent and malevolent force. One warm afternoon, the three women of the MacDonald family sat within the cool shelter of the barn, weaving straw hats for their husbands and sons to wear in the field. 
They chatted and laughed as they worked, but their conversations were cut short when a pole that formed the loft above came crashing down into the center of their circle. Shaken but unharmed, they glanced above them and nervously laughed it off. It was likely that the fallen beam had simply shrunk in the dry weather, and one of the men had inadvertently knocked it loose while baling flax the day before. Just a few minutes later, however, when the event was nearly forgotten, a second pole thundered down, again narrowly missing the women. They put down their weaving and investigated. They peered into the loft and pulled out the remaining beams, trying to find some explanation. Cautious but satisfied that the rest of the structure was sound, they went back to their work, only to have a third pole slam to the ground. Terrified that the entire barn could fall at this point, the women gathered their work and rushed to John's house, the largest of the homes on the farm. They watched the barn through the window, half expecting the entire thing to fall, but after several tense minutes, the women relaxed and resumed their work, this time within the safety of the farmhouse. They were done with the trouble they encountered in the barn, but the trouble, it seems, was not done with them. Just minutes after they set to work for a fourth time, a crash of glass broke the silence as a lead bullet burst into the room and dropped to the wooden floor at their feet. They were carefully examining the hole in their window and peering outside when another shot punched through, followed by a flurry of bullets that forced them to the ground. The windows shattered around them and they crawled through broken glass with lead shot rolling under their knees and between their fingers. They flung open the door and ran to their neighbor's property, screaming for help. Their neighbor, Mr. L. A. McDougall, would later testify that he returned with the women to their home and found it exactly as they described, panes of glass riddled with bullet holes, some windows completely shattered, but oddly, no damage to the walls. No shot had struck them or anything else in the home. The lead balls traveled at a velocity necessary to punch through the glass and leave crisp, circular holes, but once inside, they harmlessly dropped to the floor. Even stranger, the women never heard any gunfire. Several days later, John MacDonald was roused from sleep by his wife, who nudged him and whispered that she heard someone or something moving in the kitchen. John sat up and listened. Slow, steady footsteps echoed back and forth along the kitchen floor. Silence followed, then more footsteps, a creak of a door, and a startled cry from one of the children. John sprang from his bed, ran through the kitchen, and threw open the bedroom door. He found nothing but a darkened room and a frightened child. The ghostly footsteps haunted the McDonald household for the next few years. An unseen thing would walk the halls at night, stomp up to their bedroom doors, then recede into the darkness. Pacing through the kitchen, plodding across the hall, even shuffling up to bedsides and looming, unseen and silent, over their terrified children, or stalking behind the women as they moved among the rooms. The assault of bullets also returned, almost daily by some accounts, until every pane of glass was broken and the family was forced to barricade their windows with wooden boards. Even then, huddled in the musty darkness of a now windowless house, the family would witness the impossibility of lead shot somehow passing through the boards without making a mark and falling at their feet. The McDonald's would rush outside after each attack, hoping to catch some glimpse of their assailants, but they never saw a soul, and there were no trees or bushes behind which the perpetrators could hide. 
Shortly after the barricades were installed, stones began to pummel their house from all sides, either materializing past the blocked windows, raining down from the eaves, or sailing through gaps between the boards. In one instance, a heavy stone flew through the window and struck a visitor in the chest, leaving him unhurt but speechless. Part 2. Poltergeist By 1830, the Baldoon mystery had become something of a sensation, and many people across the country traveled to the MacDonald homestead to bear witness to the strange supernatural events. But as the attention grew, so too did the incidents, escalating from harmless manifestations and hauntings to more dangerous, poltergeist-like activity. Perhaps the most iconic, surely the most reported by eyewitnesses, was the near-constant assault by stones and lead shot. The house would be bombarded day and night, according to some accounts, and visitors and family members alike would pick up the projectiles, mark them in some way, and then throw them into the channel behind the house. Minutes later, the very same objects would come flying back into the room, still bearing their individual marks and still wet from the river. The strange activity came inside as well. Dishes of water would float in midair without a drop being spilled. Tongs and shovel bags on the hearth banged against each other. Chairs and tables skidded across the room and slammed to the floor. The kettle would toss off its lid, tip to one side, and violently crash downward. A ten-inch-long knife once hovered in the air before dashing across the room and embedding itself more than an inch into the window frame. Sometimes the mysteries, as they came to be called, were almost playfully droll. One visitor witnessed a piece of soap shoot from a nearby ledge and smack one of the children in the back. She was shaken but unharmed. The lead weights from John's prized fishnet, which hung on a hook outside, were hurled into the home by unseen hands all in the presence of a number of witnesses. When the group investigated, they found that each weight had somehow been removed from its place on the net without breaking or apparently even untying a single thread, a feat that only a master fisherman could achieve. Another incident, often related with a wry smile, tells how the favorite family dog was given a pot to lick clean when suddenly the ladle leapt from the pot and chased the poor creature around the room, out the door, and into the field. The story goes that the dog was chased as far as Michigan, never to return. Visitors to the McDonald's home were no less a target. A peddler named Patrick Tobin once sought the family's hospitality as he traveled through the region. The night passed without incident, but in the morning he discovered he was missing 20 silver pieces. When he mentioned this to the family, they told him not to worry, things had a tendency to disappear and reappear throughout the house. Wait patiently, they said, and we'll see what turns up. Sure enough, later at breakfast, the group heard a sharp ping on the window pane and a single silver coin dropped onto the peddler's plate. Eighteen more followed, one after the other. After the nineteenth fell, he hastily gathered his things and made his way out the door, telling the McDonald children that if they ever found the twentieth piece of silver, they could keep it. Along with an enthusiasm for messing with visitors, the entity seemed to be fond of listening in on conversations. Another visitor and fellow Scottish immigrant, James Stewart, was sitting with the McDonald's and discussing their troubles when he mentioned a similar case back in Scotland. In that case, he had heard that an empty bucket somehow traveled to a well just outside the home and had returned full of water. He wondered, had the McDonald's experienced anything like that? 
No, they replied, not yet at least. Suddenly, a full cup of water rose from the table, circled through the room, and pausing in front of them for a moment, emptied itself onto the floor. Wet floors, broken windows, and damaged kitchenware, all products of restless and relentless actions by an unseen force. The activities in those early days were certainly frightening, but they seemed more mischievous than anything else. Whatever had set its focus on the McDonald homestead seemed more intent to disrupt than to harm. As time went on, however, the mysteries would take on a more sinister and malevolent nature. Part 3. Escalation Such was the case when a curious visitor by the name of William Fleury arrived at the McDonald home. Like many visitors that year, Fleury had heard the fantastic tale of the Baldoon mysteries and decided he had to see these things for himself. As he sat with the family and discussed the bizarre activities that had occurred over the last few years, the cradle that held the McDonald's youngest child began to rock, gently at first, then more violently, until the screaming baby was nearly tossed onto the floor. It took all the strength of both men to hold the cradle still enough so the mother could snatch the child and carry it to safety. Another incident concerning the same infant occurred when Captain Lewis Bennett, an officer of the British Army, and his friend, Mr. John Jones, visited the MacDonald household to stage their own investigation. In his report, Captain Bennett detailed how the household furniture would move on its own, how his own firearm exploded without any apparent cause, and how the entire structure of the home would float up to three feet at either end and suddenly drop back to the ground. He gathered some of the lead shot that had been cast into the room and placed them in a shot belt slung over his shoulder. Minutes later, the belt was impossibly empty, and bullets burst through the windows yet again, this time dripping with water as if they had come from the river. But perhaps most sinister, he reported witnessing a direct attack on the youngest MacDonald. The baby, sleeping soundly in its cradle, suddenly awoke and began to scream. After doing their best to calm the child, the mother lifted it into her arms and found a red-hot stone beneath the child's back, burning a hole into the blanket. John MacDonald seized the stone with a pair of tongs and cast it into the channel. It sizzled when it hit the water. A minute later, the stone was thrown back into the room. Soon, the fires began, starting a new, terrifying chapter for John MacDonald and his family. Chapter 4 of the book The Baldoon Mysteries, published multiple times between 1871 and 1910 and written by one of John's descendants, describes the escalation. Quote, Little balls of fire began to float in the air, and settling in various parts of the house, set it on fire. Fires would break out, too, in every room in the house in the most unaccountable manner. Little bundles of cobwebs, flax, clothing, and other combustible things were found constantly, and the harassed family found the greatest difficulty in subduing the flames. The backlog from the hearth would be dashed in the middle of the room, scattering sparks in all directions. Closets, which no one could reach without passing through the main sitting room, were found to be receptacles for small bonfires made by unseen hands. Cotton batting was found ignited beneath the clapboards, smoke came frequently from the walls, and the family were kept for days in a state of wondering excitement. End quote. Something wanted them out. Exhausted from ongoing harassment, suffering from haunted sleep, 
a steady hail of stones and bullets, extreme poltergeist activity, and now unexplained and constant arson, the family couldn't keep up. They ran from room to room, snuffing out spontaneous fires somehow ignited in secret through the house. But their efforts were not enough. Their home, their barn, and all their belongings burned to the ground. Nothing but the clothing on their backs was saved. It seemed like they lost everything, but there was still more to lose. Though their home was now in ruins, the torture continued. The family found temporary shelter with John's brother-in-law, then later with friends and sympathetic neighbors, and finally in the black-framed house of the family patriarch, old Donald MacDonald. But no matter where they went, the same activity followed. Furniture moved, cupboards shook and fell, bullets punched through windows on the upper floor, the stones continued their assault. All were marked and cast into the river, only to be returned. With no possessions left to burn, the affliction soon turned its attention to their livelihood, their animals and the crops in the field. Corn would grow to a foot tall, then wither and die. Oxen dropped dead in the field. A plague wiped out their pigs. Their chickens and geese would die immediately after laying even a single egg. Even their horses were found lifeless in their stalls. Nearly every single animal died, and soon the MacDonald homestead seemed more like a graveyard than a farm, covered as it was in ash and bone. The death and disease did nothing to dissuade curious visitors who came in droves hoping to catch sight of the supernatural or take home a bewitched Riverstone. The Baldoon mystery proved so popular, in fact, that the government soon stepped in to formally investigate and sent the entire family to temporary quarters in an effort to quell the excited crowds and put an end to the incidents once and for all. It didn't work. Whatever had set its sights on the MacDonald family and their land was far from finished, and the activity continued both at the family's new sanctuary and at their now-abandoned homestead. Friends and neighbors who offered to watch over the house in the McDonald's absence fought numerous fires stacked and in smoking inside closets, cupboards, and even in the walls themselves. Meanwhile, the family's life at Running Creek proceeded as it had for years, amid moving objects, a flurry of stones, and the menacing footfalls of an invisible tormentor. Eventually, the officers gave up their mission to bring peace to Baldoon, and the family was permitted to return to their farm now with a few new animals, geese, horses, and an ox or two. Worried about the fires reported by their friends, the family made camp just outside Donald's black-framed house and were soon rushing inside the home through all hours of the day and night to extinguish the sudden fires. They removed clothing from the home and stored them in barrels or washed and hung them on a laundry line, only to see them burst into flames. Bundles of sticks flew through the air landed on the rooftops of Donald's house, his barn, and other outbuildings, and immediately burst into flames. In just three days after returning, Donald's barn, filled with grain, was completely destroyed. With the Canadian winter threatening, the McDonald's reluctantly sought shelter in some of the last buildings left on the property. Donald returned to his home, and John, his wife, and their three small children occupied a log cabin that was close by. Part 4. Visitors and Remedies Though the authorities seemed unable to solve the mystery, the plight of the McDonald's attracted many from all walks of life who were eager to help. 
Desperate for an answer, the family welcomed them all. One offer came from Robert Baker, a school teacher from Bay County, Michigan. A scholar with a moody temperament and a student of the supernatural, Mr. Barker was a self-proclaimed expert on witchcraft and was welcomed onto the farm to start his investigations. It didn't take long for Barker to proclaim that the family was indeed bewitched by a spirit, and he set about countering the evil. He wrote commands on placards which invoked the Holy Trinity and used language that he believed would force the spirits from the house and surrounding property. Then he nailed the placards to the walls, adding a lucky horseshoe over the door as a finishing touch. Ironically, for his efforts, the seemingly well-intentioned schoolteacher was arrested for pretending to practice witchcraft and sent away to stand trial. More aid came in the form of a Catholic priest, who visited at the community's request, despite the fact that the McDonald's were not Catholics themselves. He stayed with the family and worked tirelessly to exorcise the evil that plagued the family. After a week of prayer and ceremony, the reverend was at a loss. Perhaps this was all the work of God, he mused. Punishment for some terrible sin perpetrated by Donald or others before arriving in the new world. He urged them to confess their sins and repent, and then, with his apologies, he left the family to their fate. Yet another person appeared at their doorstep who swore that he knew the cause of their troubles. He was an indigenous man from a tribe that lived nearby, and he told the McDonald's that they were victims of a particularly nasty curse. There was a kettle, he said, buried beneath a certain tree on their property that contained a horrible and potent concoction of terrible and secret ingredients. Fifty human tongues were just one part of the inventory. This was the source of the curse, he said, and one would have to perform a secret ceremony handed down through generations to retrieve it from the earth and put an end to the family's misery. There was a catch, however. The magic was so strong, he warned, that whoever dared to disturb the kettle would be faced with immediate death. The man then smiled and reassured them that he was happy to pay such an incredible price for their relief. He knew that helping this family in a completely selfless act would put his own soul at rest and secure his place in paradise. If they were interested, he would leave to prepare for the ceremony and return in just a few days. The McDonald's agreed, and word spread through the region that the Baldoon mystery might finally be solved. When the fateful day arrived, over 200 people gathered round the tree on the McDonald's property, but their savior never showed. Eventually, some of the bravest and most skeptical members of the group dug up the tree themselves and found nothing but black earth. Government investigators, school teachers moonlighting as anti-witchcraft specialists, Catholic exorcists, would-be martyrs with stories of buried curses, it seems that everyone had a solution for the Baldoon mystery, but none were successful until they sought the advice of a local legend. Part 5. The Witch Hunter and the Clairvoyant Sometime between 1830 and 1831, an old Methodist minister brought word to Donald MacDonald that there was a doctor living some 200 kilometers to the east who was an expert in witchcraft, folk magic, and eliminating evil. This doctor also had a daughter who, it was said, was gifted with second sight, and a master at the ancient art of stone reading. Together, perhaps, the doctor and his daughter might be able to solve the mystery once and for all and put an end to their living nightmare. MacDonald and the old minister set out the next day on horseback. 
It was a three-day ride along an old First Nations trail through vast marshes and thick woodland. By the second night, they had reached the Long Woods, a gloomy and foreboding stretch of dense bush, desolate forest, and black ash swamps that stretched nearly 40 kilometers across. The evening sky was clear, and the bright moon illuminated in silver strips their path along the forest floor. Eager to reach the doctor and his clairvoyant daughter, and hoping to avoid another full day's journey in the summer heat, they decided to ride until morning. The men felt a chill as they rode between the tall trees, listening as the breeze pushed its way through unseen leaves and heavy boughs stretching high overhead. Occasionally, they would hear a creaking trunk or an owl off in the distance. But aside from that and the steady rhythm of their horses' hooves, all was quiet. The speckled shadows on the ground melded into bars of silver moonlight, and they both looked up as they entered a clearing and brought their horses to a stop. Both Nags's ears picked up, and the horses stamped impatiently in the grass. Of the riders, it was MacDonald who heard it first. There were voices on the wind, low, inarticulate, somewhere off in the darkness. They grew closer, louder, then varied. There were more of them, an army. Twigs and branches snapped behind, and then beside them, boots beat the earth, and it seemed that they were surrounded now, dozens of unseen eyes watching them from beyond the path. MacDonald anxiously turned in his saddle and peered through the trees. He could see nothing, though the noise grew even louder. The minister put a hand on MacDonald's horse to steady it. It was trying to scare them, he explained. It was clear that, whatever the entity was, it did not want them to reach their destination. They had to hurry. They spurred forward through the clearing and further into the trees. The noise doubled, and the men heard sounds of a struggle in the woods, a battle raging just out of sight. There were groans of wounded men and the screams of the dying. Then came the singular voices, calling to them from the darkness. Help! Murder! Please, anyone, help me! MacDonald veered toward the calls, but the minister held up his hand in warning and shook his head. The voices were trying to lure them into the forest. An illusion, he said but fear not, and he began to sing a hymn. The men reached the edge of the forest just as the sun crowned, and the voices faded with the trees. Once they felt they were a good distance away, MacDonald and the minister made camp, and rested a moment in the morning light. When the two men finally reached the doctor's house, they were warmly greeted, welcomed inside, and asked to share their story. The daughter, a slight 15-year-old girl, acknowledged that she was indeed gifted with a second sight and used a special stone, a moonstone, that her father had found in a field to see what others could not. But using it was agonizing, both mentally and physically, and she had resolved to use her powers only in extraordinary circumstances. MacDonald told her about the harassment that he and his family had endured over the past three years. The bullets, stones and broken windows, the footsteps and the banging, the moving furniture and fires, the livestock falling dead in their fields. He sat and told her everything as she listened silently. When he was done, she asked a single question. Prior to these events, 
had he any trouble regarding his land. The question surprised him. What did his land have to do with any of this? He answered no, but then paused and clarified. He wouldn't call it trouble, not really. The girl pressed further. Had he competed with a neighbor over a piece of land? Had he purchased land that they wanted? Had they insisted that he sell it to them and had he refused? Yes, that was true. It was years ago before all of this. He had almost forgotten. The McDonald's got along with most of the people in and around Baldoon, but this family, headed by an old crone of a matriarch, they were different. The girl sat back and closed her eyes. A long, low log house, she said, and then described each family member in detail. McDonald nodded. That was them. The girl stood. She would help them, she said. She would look into her stone and see what secrets it could reveal. Then she nodded politely, went into her room, and shut the door. The girl appeared several hours later at sunset. Her face was pale and troubled. Her eyes were red, her hair matted to her forehead. She trembled as she spoke. The stone had shown her flames. She was dismayed to reveal to MacDonald that another of his outbuildings had caught fire just two hours ago. Nothing but a black heap remained. The malevolent force was angered by his leaving, MacDonald thought. This was his punishment. He had to return home. If he didn't, he was certain that every one of his buildings, and perhaps every one of his family, would soon turn to ash. He rose from his chair, but the girl put a hand on his shoulder to stop him. The stone had shown her something more. The troubles on the MacDonald farm were not caused by a poltergeist, by a demon, or even by fairies, as some of his neighbors had claimed. In fact, his enemy was just as mortal as he, and they were hiding in plain sight. She told Donald to look for a stray goose hidden amongst his remaining flock, and, once he found it, to shoot it but she warned that no lead ball could harm it. The bullet would have to be sterling silver, and if it met its mark, their troubles would be over. Go in peace, she said, and she and her father sent MacDonald and the minister on their way. Part 6. The Shot Heard Round Baldoon When MacDonald returned to his farm, he saw that another of his buildings had been reduced to charred rubble, just as the young girl had said. He then went to his son, John, and told him of the recent revelation. The stone reading, the strange goose they were to hunt, and the need to forge a silver bullet. John nodded. He had seen the bird. Its dark head and wings made it stand out among the others. He had tried to shoot it once before, but it somehow got away, despite him being sure that he hit it. Thanks to the long-point girl with second sight, he now understood why and he knew what he had to do to rid the family of its troubles once and for all. The next morning at dawn, John went straight to the river and saw there, swimming with his own geese, the strange bird with the black head. He quickly made his way to his neighbor's home where, with their help, he molded a single silver bullet. He loaded it into his gun and invited his neighbors to join him by the riverside. The day was fresh and bright as John and the others made their way across his devastated farm, passing the charred remains of his home, the ruins of the family barn, 
the burn pit of his plague-ravaged livestock, to crouch amongst the tall grasses at the edge of the water. The channel glistened in the sunlight as John pointed to his target and told the men to watch carefully. He took aim, cocked his gun, and fired. The gunshot cracked across the water and echoed through the air, along with the pained, almost human-like cry of the black-headed bird. It flapped its wings, and they could see its left wing was broken as it struggled toward the reeds and out of sight. John let out a proud shout and clapped one of his neighbors on the back. The stress had finally got to him, they thought. John McDonald had snapped. Why else would he take such joy from shooting some random goose? And what's more, being such a terrible shot that he only winged it. But John couldn't explain himself, not yet anyway. He had to be sure that it worked, that the bullet had truly found its target, and that his family's misery was finally at an end. He waited until his neighbors dispersed, then walked some ways east to the edge of a marsh and the domain of those within the long, low log house. He made his way toward the threshold and paused. There, on the landing, sat the old crone, muttering angrily to herself. Her left arm was bruised and broken, resting lifelessly by her side. When she saw John, she narrowed her eyes and shrunk back in her chair, and he knew that it was over. The swamp witch had been dealt with, and the strange occurrences stopped that same day. With the curse finally lifted, the MacDonald family rebuilt their farm and lived in peace and happiness once again. That's the story of The Baldoon Mystery, a Canadian legend that has been told countless times to eager listeners for over 125 years. But, as is often the case, there's more to this classic legend that often goes unsaid. The history, the theories behind the mystery, and the similarities to other cases around the world. I'll cover that and more in the next episode. That's it for now. Thank you so much for listening and for joining me in becoming part of a Canadian folk tradition. Now that you know the story, share it. And remember... Never get involved in a real estate battle with a shape-shifting swamp witch. They tend to play for keeps. Fireside Canada is written and recorded by me, David Williams. Sound design and mixing is by Ryan Clark. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider giving this podcast a positive review. If you want to help even further, you can support me through my website, Every little bit helps to keep the fire burning and the library of legends growing. Learn more at firesidecanada.ca.